In the Old Testament, in, uh, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22, we discover the story of young King Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, very young king. He had come after a succession of very wicked and evil kings. The land was not doing well. There was idolatry taking place. There was child sacrifice taking place. All the terrible parts of the Old Testament were taking place in the kingdom when Josiah, this young eight-year-old boy, becomes the king. Well, 18 years into his reign, his high priest, whose name was Hilkiah, is doing repair work in the temple. And Hilkiah stumbles upon, upon the book of the law. What's remarkable is that the book of the law had been lost. The book of the law more than likely would have referred to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote. Hilkiah is stumbling upon, the, you know, cleaning up all the crates, cleaning up all the old stuff, dusting the cobwebs off the temple with his team, and he stumbles upon the law. And he runs over to Josiah, the king. He says, you never be believe what I found. I found this book, and it looks like it's the book that, you know, those rumors we've heard of, that all this had been recorded, that God had spoken through Moses to his people. Hilkiah brings it over, and for the first time in many generations, the book of the law is read. Josiah listens, and here's what we read in 2 Kings 22, verses 11 to 13. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, that's Josiah, he tore his clothes. Let's pause there. I want you to think the kind of emotion that is affiliated with tearing your clothes. It's such a deep pain and grief. It's a, it's a turmoil of the soul that something has completely changed my life. I just have to rip something. Josiah is so overwhelmed by the reading of the law, he tears his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that's written. Josiah begins an act of repentance, this process of falling before God in genuine humility falling on his knees, bringing the other priests of the temple on their knees, saying, if this is what the word says, and this is what we've been doing, we've been sinning, and there is wrath coming, and they repent. Josiah begins to go through all the land, clearing away all the idols. Every little bit of symbolism, everything that was possibly any type of worship to a foreign god. He even goes so far as to remove all the military horses that had been commissioned in the service of a false god. He burns all the chariots that had been commissioned in the service of a false god. He removes every priest that is not faithfully preaching the one true gospel found in the Bible. He removes every idol. He goes to every high place. He tears down all the altars that were made where child sacrifice was taking place. He completely reforms the land. 2 Kings 22, verses 35. Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This man hungered with a zealous passion for God's word, didn't he? He knew that the peace of the nation 
that he was commissioned and authorized to oversee, as well as the peace of his people, depended on obedience to God's word, and he was willing to do whatever it took, no matter the cost, in order to see that work done, of following God's word in total purity. And when he was confronted with the reality that they were off, he made changes. You know, reformation like that's a painful process. It's not easy to be the person to go to all the idol factories and shut them down. You don't make friends all that well doing that. It's easy to read about it in someone else's culture. It's much harder for us to begin removing the idols in our own life and the idols in our own church and the idols in our own culture. It's very easy to look at, you know, 500 B.C., and, and think, okay, clearly they had idols up on mountains, they had altars up here. It's much more difficult to look out at our culture and look out in the ways that we participate in idolatry that we just think are normal. That's just kind of dragged into the church with us because it's American Christianity. That's how we do things. It's very difficult to actually go through and do the hard work of being so grieved by your sin and the confrontation of God's word pointing towards your sin that truly you tear your clothes in grief and then do the hard work of bringing repentance. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Sobering words from Jesus. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Are you a lukewarm Christian? And what if today the Lord somehow, by the power of his Spirit, reveals to you that indeed you are a lukewarm Christian? Would you be willing to be like Josiah and do whatever is needed, whatever it takes to reform your life into accordance with God's word? Today's passage, we continue through the book of Acts. And where we are today is studying this five short verses. And frankly, it's just one verse where we meet the Bereans. And the Bereans have gone down in history because of this one verse that describes the zeal and the passion and the hunger for God's word that they had in the New Testament. You remember last week, we were, Paul was in Thessalonica, and Paul was having a great ministry. People were beginning to hear the word. People were beginning to understand the gospel. People were believing across all different sects of life in, in first century Israel, in first century Judaism at the time. And then what happened? A mob rose up. It was just in the first part of this chapter where the gospel begins to go forward and then a mob and a riot starts and they kick Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica. As it turns out, wherever the gospel goes, not only do you make disciples, but you make enemies. And Paul and Silas were kicked out of Thessalonica and they headed to Berea. So that was what had just taken place and we're gonna pick this story up right where they are, heading into Berea. And it's an attitude that I want to actually focus our hearts on today of living like these Bereans who we're gonna focus and see today. If you don't share this attitude with the Bereans today, I wanna ask you, do you have the courage to be like Josiah and do what's necessary to change? Acts chapter 17, 10 to 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's from Thessalonica, where there was a mob, to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, that's where they just were, when those Jews learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy, those are the two that were accompanying Paul, but Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, let's deal first with the second half of that text. The Jews from Thessalonica, who just had stirred up a mob in Thessalonica, catch word that Paul is now in Berea preaching, and he's having some success. The gospel's beginning to go forward, and what do they do? Those same Jews from Thessalonica come over, and they begin a new mob, and they begin to try to stop Paul from doing his work. The faithful, clear, deliberate, unfiltered preaching of God's word and all of its implications will make deep disciples, as we see in Thessalonica and in Berea. And it will also make deep enemies. And this church is willing to pay that price. I need you to hear that. And I invite you into that with us. This church is willing to pay the price of making deep enemies for the sake of the gospel of Christ. But church, among the brothers and sisters of the church, in this church, we have to make sure that we recognize who the enemy is. We have an enemy outside of the church who wants to tear the church apart, who wants to rip it apart, who wants to sow seeds of division into the church. I've watched it take place. And the enemy is out there, and we must fight that enemy. But we must not let that enemy come into this room. And in fact, we must fight that sense of division whenever we see it sneaking its evil head in its, into the place like this. Wherever division's bubbling up, wherever gossip is bubbling up, we've got to be the kind of church that goes straight to the people, has honest, open conversations, offers forgiveness upon forgiveness, because after all, isn't that what the gospel is? Grace upon grace. And we strive for unity. You know why? Because there's far too much good work to get, to get after, to settle for allowing gossip and division to bubble up inside of the church. We've got to get after that work. The enemy's out there, not in here. Let's go to the beginning of the passage, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 10. Paul it does what his usual custom is. He goes to the synagogue, and he begins to have these conversations in the synagogue. Now, this is what Paul oftentimes did. In fact, that's why he chose the cities he chose, because there were cities in the Roman Empire that had synagogues in them. First, he would go to the Jews, and he would explain that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and then he would go to the Gentiles, and he would explain to all the non-Jews that Jesus was not only the Messiah for the Jews, but he was the Savior, the Messiah for the entire world. And we actually know kind of what his sermon sounded like back then, because earlier in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 4, we read, we read this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Paul would go over multiple Sabbath days into the synagogue, and he'd open up the scrolls. They didn't have Bibles like this back then. They had these big scrolls that they'd roll out, kind of pull them open. He'd find his place, and he'd begin to teach that Jesus was the Messiah. And people would come back week after week. What are you teaching? Explain it more to us. We never heard this before. Can you, can you, can you, what about this? And Paul would reason with them and prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah from the scriptures. And I love that language. He explained and proved. That's very important. He made a logical defense for the case of the gospel, rooting his argumentation in the pages of Scripture. What is he not doing? He's not necessarily relying on dreams and visions that he's had. Paul later tells us of dreams and visions that he's had, and he uses them to encourage the church. But when he's trying to explain to folks who are not believers who Jesus is, he's going back to the text and he's showing them with clarity exactly who Jesus is from the word of God. This is what the Bible says. Now, I want to just explain this to you. This might seem like a small point, but actually I think it's, it's really, really important. In this church, we have a really powerful movement of evangelism taking place where many of you have come out with me and others and gone out sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with folks in Chicago. We'll go to Millennium Park. We'll go down to the Loop. Many of you are also working diligently to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your coworkers. The most effective thing you can do to share the gospel is to open up your Bible. And rather than saying, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is my perspective, go back to the word and show them what the Bible says. Let them see Jesus' own words. Because you know what the scripture says about scripture? It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through to the division of bone and marrow, dividing soul and spirit. See, it's the word of God that's a thousand times more powerful than your own reasoning and, and, and proving. It's when you open up God's word that things begin to happen. And, and people hear God's word and they say, that's convicting. I had never thought of that. That's what the Bible says. I see this over and over again. If you want to win people to Christ, you do it with your Bibles open. And you know scripture so you can bring the right passages to bear in any given conversation. Now, let's look at these Bereans. For the rest of the message, I want to focus on these particular people, the Bereans, and I want to look at the life they lived and what they did when they were encountered with the gospel. Verse 11, let me read it again. Now, these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Let me call out four, just from that one verse, four clear identity markers that someone has a Berean spirit about them. And what I'm going to do with each of these, I'm going to contrast them with a lukewarm spirit. I want you to see that there is a right, joy-filled, eager, passionate pursuit of Jesus that is remarkably and clearly seen in these Bereans. And in the American church, there is also a lukewarm spirit that is very easy to think is normal for Christians, and it's not. So I want us to see these two spirits side by side. Number one, first marker of a Berean spirit, a curiosity about the things of God. There's a curiosity about the things of God. 
We're told that they were more noble. Isn't that an interesting word in our ESV translation? They're more noble. That word certainly has the, the idea of nobility. Sometimes the word noble is used to speak of kings, queens, those who are royalty. In this particular context, the word is meant to say they were very virtuous, but it's virtuous because they're open-minded. They, they were curious, they, they wanted to learn new information and they wanted to see God and they wanted to understand the scriptures. They had a curiosity to understand and rightly read the word of God. Their curiosity was hungry to make sure they weren't reading it wrong. And so they approached God and his word with a hungry curiosity to know, is this what the text actually says they were open-minded in the sense that they wanted to know God's word. And when a teacher like Paul came along and began to instruct them things that they had never heard before from the word of God, they wanted to know, is this really what the Bible says? I've got to know this for myself. They were curious. That's a Berean spirit. Lukewarm spirit. A lukewarm spirit lacks curiosity. It lacks passion to discover the things of God through the word. A lukewarm spirit has very little conviction in their heart if they go a few days without approaching the word of God or without reading the word of God because there's no curiosity there. There's no hunger and, 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 and desire to learn something new about God. It's just not there. And so if you go a little bit without reading the word of God, there's no real conviction. It's just normal life because there's no curiosity inside of you. And the other thing about a lukewarm spirit with Christianity is that it misunderstands what it means to be open-minded towards scriptures. We are not open-minded towards every idea that someone can say, towards any preacher and anything they, that they might tell you. We want to know what does the text actually say. And so we're not open-minded to any idea or everyone's opinion. We guard ourselves about, against new ideas because we're limited by what the text actually says. And so we're curious. We hear an idea and we say, let's see, is it true? See, this is what the priesthood of believers is all about. When you become a Christian, we're not reliant, on, you're, you're not reliant on me to tell you what the scriptures say. I'm a teacher, I'm a preacher. I help teach and I help expand on the word so we can have right thinking on it. But you share with me in the priesthood of believers, which means that you have authority given to you by God to open up the text and see, is this what it says? My pastor told me something today that's really interesting. I can go to the Bible and see if it's true. Do you have a curiosity about you? Do you have a Berean spirit? Or has lukewarm American Christianity kind of worked its way into you a little bit? Number two, they had an eagerness. It says that they searched the scriptures with all eagerness. When I think of that language, you know, I think I heard one preacher describe it this way one time, a long time ago. He said, it's, it's like a hungry dog sitting underneath a table. You ever seen a dog who's sitting by a table and he's just, you know, he's sitting there patiently just waiting for the smallest crumb. And when he thinks a crumb is about to fall, he stutter steps towards it. Yeah, no, okay, and then he sits, waits. He's hungry for the smallest crumb to fall off the table. And then what happens when a bit of food gets thrown to a dog who's sitting by a dinner table? Oh, he's all over that thing. I mean, you throw a chicken, a chicken leg to a dog who's sitting by a table, he's just gnawing on that thing. He's working at it. He wants to know everything. Give that dog an hour with that chicken bone, there's not a scrap of meat left on it. He has just worked that thing, and he's probably swallowed parts of the bone. He's been so hungry for it. Eager for the word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. An eager, joyful, abounding curiosity and awe, awe-filled, precious pursuit of the knowledge of God through the study of the word of God. That's a Berean spirit. As I'm going through this, I want you to hear, this will make you weird in the eyes of the world, right? This is weird in the eyes of the world. This is normal Christianity, normal Christianity. The desire to know God, to see God for who he truly is through his word. What's a lukewarm spirit? A lukewarm spirit lacks zeal for the things of God. There's no passion. There's no excitement. There's no discovery. There's no sitting in awe of God and and no desire to look at this thing and and wake up early in the morning and discover what God's going to speak to you through it today and how he's going to reform your life. It's just a, a lukewarm spirit. There's no more wrestling with God. It's just motions. Come to church, go out of church. Come to church, go out of church. Where's the passion to know the things of God? To know everything he's said. Look, I've been a Christian for 18 years in my life. I've been to seminary. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor in a church. I remember when I was in college, near my senior year, I'd been a Christian for three years at the time. And I remember a guy was discipling me. I just, I just FaceTimed with him this week. He was, he was uh, discipling me. And I remember saying, I feel like I got a good grasp of this thing at this point. I think I kind of got it. I, I, I understand it. I, I, you know, I've read it a handful of times now. I kind of know how the books fit together. I, and I remember thinking quite cockily, like I had, I had this thing figured out. Can I tell you, 17 years later, I have, I've, I've stripped off a splinter of the mountain that is the word of God so far. The more I learn about the word of God, the more I realize I have an eternity to figure this thing out and go deeper with God. We need a zeal to get past the splinter, to say there's a mountain before us, there's a whole iceberg. We haven't even scratched the surface. I want to know everything about God. Where's the passion? Berean spirit or lukewarm spirit? Which one's true of you? Number three was community. Did you read that in this text? Community. It was the whole church that came together. Remember, in that day, there weren't personal handheld Bibles. They didn't have a printing press yet. That didn't happen until the Reformation. (laughs) Praise God for the printing press and for Bibles. That's amazing. But in that day, they were probably in a smaller synagogue like the one in Berea, maybe two scrolls tops. These huge, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these old scrolls. They're huge. They have these two poles in them. And what you do is you roll it out and it takes about 10 men to kind of carry it and you roll it out a little bit more, then you carry it. You Together, day in, day out, searching the scriptures. That's how I know it was done in community because you needed community to do it, simply to open it. What does it say? Could he be right? Remember when Paul said this? What do you think about it? What do you think about it? Oh yeah, what Rabbi so-and-so say to you? That kind of lines up with what this says. Did you hear that over here? What is he saying over there? See, a a, a Berean spirit wants to do this in community. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. A Berean spirit loves the study of God's word in community because they know there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. I had a seminary professor who used to say, 
Dr. J, Dr. Wang Lui Singh, he used to say, you know, if I could study the word of God every morning by myself or every morning with a group of people, I choose the group of people every time. It's more uncomfortable and I like my alone time, he'd say, but I get far more out of it with a group of people because God's placed his Holy Spirit in all these different people and they're there to shape me and I'm there to shape them. A Berean spirit loves community. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you, plural, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, of the body. We're dependent on one another. If you think you can do this Christianity thing in a city like Chicago that wants to take Christians down, you are wrong if you think you can do it alone. You need the body. You were made for it. The Berean spirit loves the body. A lukewarm spirit believes in Lone Ranger Christianity. They're not that concerned about everybody else. A lukewarm spirit kind of pops in, pops out, does their thing when it's convenient for them. The church is showing up to do something real important that everyone's been called to. Someone else will probably do it. Church needs volunteers for the children's ministry. Someone else will probably do it. Church is calling their people to fill the back hallway with prayer, 815 to 845 every Sunday. Someone else will probably do it. A lukewarm spirit's not that concerned if it doesn't really nicely fit into their own personal desires and wants and needs and schedule. A lukewarm spirit is very American because America loves their individuality and the pursuit of becoming the best you. But in a Berean spirit, we're more interested in the best church. And whether that means that we're a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord or, the, or, or someone who's showing up early at 6 a.m. in the morning to set the room up, it doesn't matter what our role is. We're here for the fullness of the body of Christ. Number four, there was a fixed rhythm, a fixed rhythm. A Berean spirit studies scripture daily. You see that right in the text. They examined the scriptures daily. They were hungry. They couldn't go a couple days without it. They go stir crazy, busying themselves with a whole lot of other things, leisure activities that were not as exciting as them and not as life-giving and, and soul-forming and important for them as the word of God was. A Berean spirit cannot fathom going a few days without the influx of God's word to shape their heart, to fuel their mission, to connect with God, to reform their ways because a Berean spirit knows how sinful we are. It knows that we're more sinful than we would ever dare admit to anybody in this room and we're more sinful than we even realize and God sees it all. And we need the word of God to sharpen us. How dare we go without hearing from God's revealed word to shape us every day? See, a lukewarm spirit, there's no rhythm to it. It's the study of God's word at convenience. If it fits in. If our favorite show is not on. If I got to bed at the right time. If I didn't go out all night last night. Right? It's whatever all the other things that we want to do with our time. If the word of God fits in, I think of it like this. You, have all, you, have, you only have so much time in your week. And usually what happens, we live in Chicago. This is a very busy city. We're very busy with a lot of very important things and there's a lot to do and a lot of things you could be doing. But there's only so many hours in a week. You can't do everything. I wanna learn jujitsu. I just can't right now. I don't have the time in my life. My wife would kill me if I took jujitsu on right now, okay? Side note, that wasn't in the script. But you have all, the, you have all this time, okay? 
But what happens is you start putting all these things you have to do into your life and slowly what happens is you feel the squeeze and because the study of God's word is the lowest priority item, it falls off the first. It's the first thing to fall off. And so I sit down with you. Whenever I connect with someone, how's your study of God's word? Oh, it's okay. How often is it? Once or twice a week. That's good. That's good if you're settling but if you want a Berean spirit about you for the things of God, to know God, it's not gonna cut it. You need the daily influx of God's word. Do you have a lukewarm spirit? Or do you have a Berean spirit about you? See, this is what the gospel is. It, this is. This is really good news, because here's what I'm guessing right now. As I'm saying this, my guess is there's a lot of conviction going around this room right now. I, there's gotta be. There's got to be a lot of conviction going around this room. And if there's not, I, I'm not sure if you're listening. Because we are a church in America, and we've dragged a lot of American kind of do-it-at-your-own-pace Christianity into uh, here with us. And we need the word of God to shape us. Let the Holy Spirit have its way. Feel the rot inside of you. Know it's there. But then be like Josiah, who tore his clothes in grief and said, no, God is far too important in my life to settle for that. See, this is how sweet the gospel is. The gospel is grace upon grace for sinners like us who though we're still walking this many years after following Jesus in lukewarm Christianity, we can look up to the cross and say, yeah, I know. G Jesus says, I know. I'm aware of the situation and I still love you. You know why I still love you? Because I died for you on the cross. It's that beautiful that even when I gave my whole life for you and you let Bible reading fall off your priorities because you kind of could care less some days, I still love you. I went to the cross for you and I'm not turning my back on you. And I'm not leaving you in your lukewarm Christianity. I'm drawing you out of it. See, the gospel is not just justification. Justification is the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. I was 17 when that happened. But the gospel then drives you through sanctification. That's the lifetime growth in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. And you keep growing. You never stop at these plateaus and just think you made it. I've uncovered a splinter of this mountain. Got an eternity to figure it out. Imagine for a moment, let me, let me see if I can give you a picture for this. Imagine for a moment that you're driving towards the Rocky Mountains, okay? You're just, you're headed towards the state line of Colorado, and, and you just get over a hill, and in the distance, you can see just this, the Rockies, right? They're, they're amazing, but they're blurry. It's hazy from a distance. From the state line, they're impressive, but you're not on the mountain yet. It's, it's impressive. And so you're looking from the state line, when you believe in Jesus, it's a lot like crossing that state line. Okay, now I get it. I see the smallness of myself, and I see the bigness of God. He's the mountain. And I can see it, and I recognize it, and I understand it. And I have the right awareness as a Christian at this point to be able to say to stand on that mountain would be the greatest thing I could ever possibly do. To know God with that depth and to walk with him and look at every nook and cranny and every little flower that's growing in every cave and, and see everything and take my life to study that whole mountain. That would be incredible. And when you believe in Jesus, it's like crossing the state line and you can see it all. And there's something new in your heart that says, I know I'm made for that. 
Two things oftentimes happen. Many of us stop at the state line. We stop at the state line, and now we know. We know how good God is. He's out there. We see it. But we just say, well, that's pretty good. I think I'll stay here. (laughs) Meanwhile, God's saying, no, 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 no. Don't stay here. Come closer. The way you come closer is through the Berean spirit-filled study of God's word because he's revealed himself to us. And so we open this and we study it and we do it in community and we sing about it and we pursue God together. It's the study of God's word is how you get in your car and drive towards the mountain because here's what happens. As you're driving towards the mountain, what happens? The mountain seems bigger. More things come into clarity that you couldn't see before. You see entire new things. You can begin to see the tree line at the top of the mountain. And you begin to seem much smaller than you were as you put yourself in perspective next to God. The closer you get to the mountain, the smaller you realize you are. The more sin is revealed in your life. The weaker you realize and the more dependent you realize you are on God. And the cross just becomes infinitely bigger as you see yourself smaller and God becomes bigger. The cross, that great thing that's bridging the gap between those two things, it just gets bigger in your sight. Some of us stop at the state line. But then you know what some of us else do? And here's where I think most are. Some of us have a season where we're intentionally driving the car. And man, it's good. We're getting closer. It's like every day we're experiencing new things. The mountain's getting bigger. We're getting smaller. The cross is seeming bigger. Jesus is good. We're going for it. We're way past the state line. But the mountain's still way off. I mean, you ever drive towards a mountain? You think you're like 10 minutes away. You're actually like 10 hours away. But then life happens. You get married. You get a new, busier job. Maybe you bring kids into your life. Things happen in your life. Events happen. Family situations emerge. And you plateau. You pull over at a pit stop. For some in this room, I think what's taken place is you had a season where you were walking with Jesus so passionately and powerfully and the word of God was coming so alive And what you're doing right now is you're relying on that former season, thinking that can fuel you for the next leg. And it can't. It won't. It will not fuel you. Pit stops are good for a short time. There is a season where God's done a remarkable work. Life has a lot happening for you to just sit in the sweetness and the contentedness of just knowing you are loved. And to kind of just say, God, just I need need to just be here for a little bit. But if you stop at a pit stop, if you stop at the rest stop and think you made it, it's no different really than stopping at the state line and thinking you made it. You're just a little closer. Some of us are relying on former experiences of walking sweetly with Jesus. And then what happens is, slowly, if you stay at that pit stop, Jesus just becomes a little less important over time in your life. You don't realize it, but you're slowly driving backwards. We gotta get in the car and keep driving forwards. The mountain is calling. God is calling you closer to get a bigger view of him and a much smaller view of yourself and a far grander view of the cross. There are entire new caverns to explore, entire new qualities of God to grasp. There are entire new ways to pray that you've never even heard of. There are entire new experiences of the Holy Spirit that you would never dream of being a part of. Entire new battles of spiritual warfare that you are needed in. 
Entire new understandings of the depth of your sin to repent of. Entire new people to invest your life in so you can watch them grow as a result of you being in their life. Entire new people groups who have never heard the gospel, who your church is inviting you to go bring the gospel with you to help them find the gospel so they can get on the journey like you. Don't stop at the pit stop. Keep chasing after God. William Wilberforce, the great British politician who paved the way to end the slave trade in Britain, he put it this way. God desires to set his throne in our hearts and, our, and reign there without competition. May a spirit of Josiah sweep over this church and renew our passions once again, no matter the cost. I want to close today's message with an invitation. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to invite you all to stand up as we enter into a time of worship and prayer right now. I want to end today's message with an invitation to each of you. It's very easy in our modern day to get swamped with everything that must get done. It's very easy to fill your life when every free moment with a screen. It's very easy to forsake the deep study of scripture that, permi that permits you to realize you have made work an idol, you've made money an idol, you've made your status an idol, you've made your ambitions an idol. It's very easy to allow all that to happen. But from time to time, we've got to allow the word of God to confront us and have the courage to be like Josiah, to remove the idols that are truly present, the things that get in our way of truly trusting Jesus with our life. We've got to be able to say, I've been stuck at this rest stop for far too long, and I'm not okay with that. I don't want to be okay with that. I want a renewed heart for the things of God. We've got to be like Josiah, who fell on his knees in repentance. And with prayers and with a, with a hungry cry to God, pray, God, would you change us? And here's the precious thing about God is that he delights in those prayers. He always honors those prayers. He always responds to those prayers of repentance because he's a good God. He's a good father who knows you and loves you. We're going to have a moment of prayer right now. And then we're going to flow into a season of worship, singing a few more songs together. But before we worship together, I, I want to give you space just to kind of work with God right now. You know, I, I like to say church should be the place where when we come together, the primary thing we're doing is praying together, right? Wouldn't that be so strange if you came to church on a Sunday and, and that church just didn't pray? Wouldn't that be like the weirdest thing in the entire world? I wonder how many church services we've been to where we just never prayed together. So we're going to have a moment of prayer. Here's how it's going to work. The band's going to play behind us. And I'm gonna invite, if you're a deacon in this room or if you are a trained prayer warrior in this room, I'm gonna invite you, just head to like maybe the outside, the walls, kind of to, to the outside. You'll, you'll see some of these folks heading out that way. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray. And honestly, I'm gonna invite you to do something that's very uncomfortable for some of you, and that's to get up out of your seats and to move around the room. I, I believe the Holy Spirit's asking you to repent of true idols in your life. They don't look like idols. They don't look like you know, God's made of gold, but they're there and they're stopping you, they're hindering you. And if you sense that at all, have a brain spirit about you. Don't do it by yourself. <laughs> do it in community. That's what these prayer warriors are for. It's your family, they're deacons, they're trained for this. They love you, they pray for you even when, when you're not in here, they're praying for you. 
The band's gonna play. I'm gonna pray for just a moment. And then I'm gonna invite you to pray. If you came here with somebody and you wanna pray over them out loud, the music will be loud enough that you can pray out loud. In fact, I would love that. I would love to hear prayers just being lifted up. If you're a husband with a wife, pray over your wife. Pray for your husband. If you're here with friends, pray with your friends. If this is totally uncomfortable for you, that's okay. I'm so glad you're here. You can stay there, just pray quietly. God loves that prayer as well. But I'm gonna invite you to get up and go around this room. There's prayer warriors all around here. Let them pray for you and with you. And let's pray fervently to God. Let's expect him to move in this room. Let's pray that God would actually move in such a way that idols really do get broken down today. And that we really do leave here with a new enthusiastic passion for Jesus like the Bereans had. I'm gonna pray and then I'll invite you to pray as well. Jesus, have your way with us. This is your church and we love you, Lord. We love the gospel and we hate our lukewarmness. God, I hate when I sense a lukewarmness bubbling up in my own heart and I never want it. I wanna just get rid of it and I just want a passionate pursuit of you and I want that for our church. Jesus, have your way with us as we pray right now. I pray that you would be honored in the way we pray, that we would do it as a community. Revelation says the prayers of the saints rise up like a fragrant aroma before the throne of God. May these rise up to you, Father, as you sit on your throne. We love you. May we kick off this whole ministry year as a praying people, boldly approaching the throne of grace. Church, pray.